So this morning what I want to do is a guided contemplation. There are basically two types of things, two general classifications of things you can do during a meditation period. These would be a meditation or a contemplation. A meditation would be something that is either without words or has a very limited set of words. Whereas a contemplation is actually thinking about a topic. Yes, it is legal to think while sitting on a cushion. But you need to stay on the topic. Now, meditations fall into two subcategories. There are meditations designed to generate concentration, and there are meditations designed to give you insight into the nature of reality. Some methods, such as mindfulness of breathing, can be used for either of these, and some are strictly for one or the other. But all contemplations are for insight. The amount of words that are there will not generate sufficient concentration. But they are an effective method for examining reality. It helps to do them with a concentrated mind. You can become distracted while doing a contemplation, just like you can become distracted while meditating, simply by thinking about some other topic. If you notice you've become distracted while contemplating, let go of the other topic and come back to the original topic. So what I'm going to do now is a guided contemplation. This is the five daily recollections or the five daily remembrances. What I'll do is I'll say a phrase and then you are to repeat the phrase out loud. And then I'll say a few words about the topic, and then you are to think about the topic. Think about the implications of what you said. And then after a few minutes, I'll do the next one. So there will be five of them. So in order to begin, please put your attention on your breath for a few moments. So repeat after me. I am of the nature to grow old. I have not overcome aging. I am of the nature to grow old. So the first thing to do is to see is this true? Do you notice that you are growing older? That aging is happening? And if so, is there anything you can do to prevent the aging from happening? 
Are there things that you attempt to do to prevent the aging from happening? When you see signs of aging in your body, what's your reaction? What's your attitude towards the fact that you are inhabiting a body that daily is growing older? I am of the nature to become ill. I have not overcome illness. So again, is this true? Do you ever become ill? And if you become ill, what's your reaction? Does it seem like something that shouldn't be happening? And if you're not ill, do you ever appreciate the fact that you're in good health? What's your attitude towards inhabiting a body that is, has these tendencies to become ill? I am of the nature to die. I have not overcome death. I am of the nature to die. I have not overcome death. 
Is this true? If it's true, do you ever think about the fact that someday you're going to die? Or do you just sort of ignore that? And if you do think about it, what's your reaction? Does it frighten you? Does it spur you to use your time wisely? Just what is your attitude towards your own death? All that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. So what do you find dear and delightful these days? Could those dear and delightful things possibly change and vanish? If they do, what will be your reaction? What things in the past have you found dear and delightful that changed and vanished? And how did you react to that?
This last one has multiple parts. I'll give them to you one at a time. I am the owner of my karma. I am born of my karma. I am born of my karma. I live supported by my karma. I live supported by my karma. I am related to my karma. I am related to my karma. All that I do, whether good or evil, that I will inherit. The word karma means action, and what the Buddha is saying is reflect on your actions and their consequences. Whatever you sow, that you will reap. So, do you pay attention to the possible (coughs) results of your actions when you act? (coughs) Or is the possible results just an afterthought? How much... Attention, do you pay to your intentions? <coughs> your actions follow from your intentions. So, five cheery little things to think about every day. But this is the rules of the game. You incarnate in human form, and this is what you're facing. This is what you have to deal with. And if you ignore the rules when playing a game, it doesn't go so well. Uh, For example, let's say you learn to play chess. Well, chess is a little complicated. This piece can move this way and that can move that, and you decide to simplify things. You're only going to move your pieces one square at a time. Make it easier, right? So you start playing a game, and pretty soon your opponent comes swooping across the board and takes your queen, and you get all upset. And your opponent says, but the rules say I can do this. Oh, yeah, right, okay. So you go back to moving your pieces one square at a time, and the next thing you know, Checkmate. Game's over. It doesn't go well if you ignore the rules. And the rules are that (laughs) we have this body subject to old age, sickness, and death, that no matter how dear and delightful we find something, there's no guarantee it's going to stick around. And we reap what we sow. 
I am of the nature to grow old. I have not overcome aging. We live in a culture that is incredibly stupid about aging. Most cultures on this planet throughout history have actually revered the older people, looked to them for wisdom. Whereas we live in a culture that basically says, don't get any older than 25. And if you do, certainly don't look any older than 25. This is ridiculous. This is, this is stupid. And yet, this is the messages that are coming at us from the media all the time. So, what does it mean to live in a body that is wearing out? Maybe you don't really notice it wearing out these days, but I think over time that will start to happen. How are you going to deal with that? Uh, It's just not going to look as good as it used to. In fact, truth be told, today is probably the best you're ever going to look for the rest of your life. It just sort of goes downhill from here, right? What do you, what's your attitude about that? This is something you need to deal with because this is going to happen. Well, not necessarily. I mean, you could die real soon, but that's not a real good option. And then we find ourselves living in bodies that are subject to becoming ill. When you become ill, what's your attitude? Say like, oh no, this is a disaster. This shouldn't be happening to me. So you have to stay home from work. (laughs) Do you ever think, oh, I get to stay home from work. That means I can meditate all day long. No, you watch TV, right? I mean, I've heard people say they want to be able to meditate when they die. And you get a cold, can't meditate now. It's too much. Got news for you folks, when you die, it's going to be worse than a cold. You should look at it if you're sick and have to stay home. Oh boy, I get to practice meditating in adverse circumstances. But no, we we somehow feel that we shouldn't become sick, and yet we do. And if you're not sick, do you appreciate the fact that you're not sick? I mean, who woke up this morning and went, huh? Relatively healthy. This is great. No, you just assume that's the way it's going to be. And then death. The only certainty we have is death. Benjamin Franklin said that the only certainties were death and taxes. Well, actually, taxes are optional. But death, that's the only thing you can be certain of. I mean, you may assume that in an hour you're going to go eat in the dining room. Probably. But who knows? There could be a meteor headed right towards us. <laughs> For sure, we're going to wind up dead. So what do we do with this one absolutely certain piece of knowledge? Ignore it to the best of our ability. Uh, the culture that we live in is even stupider about death than it is about aging. When someone dies, what do we do? We, we put makeup on them, put them in their best clothes, put them in a box. You go visit them, you look, you say, oh, they look so lifelike. No, they don't. They look dead, right? But we try and do our best to make them look alive when they're dead, We're all going to die. Everyone we know is going to die. This is just part of life. We need to come to terms with this rather than pretend it's not going to happen. Yet you're going to get no support for dealing with this from the culture because the culture wants to pretend it's not going to happen. There are other cultures on this planet where death is much more an obvious part of existence. You can go to India, and it's obviously much more obvious there. If you ever get a chance to go to Varanasi and can go to the Burning Ghats on the Ganges River, I highly recommend doing so. It's an unforgettable experience. There are other places where they have cremations, 
in Asia, Kathmandu at Pashupatinath and other places on the Ganges. So if you're ever there, it's definitely a thing to do to go check it out. You can confront death in a way that just simply is not available in the West. And then karma. The word karma literally means actions, though in the West it's often come to mean the results of actions. The Buddha spoke of both karma and the results. At his time, the word karma was used by the Brahmins to signify ritual action. In order to ensure that your crops grew properly and you had a bountiful harvest, it was necessary to make a sacrifice to the gods. But you being a farmer, you didn't know the correct actions, so you needed to hire a Brahmin who knew the correct actions to do the sacrifice for you. And so this is what karma was about these ritual actions, in particular the actions of the sacrifices to ensure that your life went smoothly. The Buddha said this is nonsense. He said things happen because of causes and conditions. He actually said, karma, I declare, O monks, is intention. This is a very radical departure from the teachings that were being given in his day. He was looking and seeing that your intentions actually transform your mind. That if you went around intending to do unwholesome things, you kept thinking about killing somebody who was annoying you, that this would leave a residual effect a more hating mind, a less loving mind. That it's not just carrying out an action that has effects, but even the intentions have effects. This was quite radical. The neuroscientists today have discovered that our minds are quite plastic. They can be shaped and molded. And our intentions are a way of doing this shaping and molding. If we intend good things, it has a tendency to make us have minds that think more along those lines. And similarly, if we are intending unwholesome things, then our minds find it easier to go that way. In the States, if someone joins an urban gang, one of the first things they do is send them out to commit a crime, rob a liquor store or something like that, so that they can get over their resistance to doing the unwholesome acts, so that they can have the intention to do these things that are not approved by society. Now, we are programming ourselves in the same way, maybe not to the same outrageous extent, but just our intentions are coloring who we become. And then our speech has results, and then our actual actions have results. Some actions are intentional and some are unintentional, and... Basically, the intention behind the action, to some extent, determines the consequences of that action. The legal system recognizes this. If you intend to kill someone, well, where I come from, they'll kill you. If you kill someone accidentally, then there may be penalties, depending on how careless you were, but they're not quite as likely to execute you where I come from. So we need to pay attention to our intentions as well as our speech and our actions. Karma in the Buddha's teachings is a teaching about looking at what you're about to do and seeing is this wholesome or unwholesome. 
realizing that the results that you'll get are dependent upon the quality of the action. It's about looking now towards what you're going to do in the future. It's not really about explaining why bad things happen to good people or good things happen to bad people. It's true. You can find in the suttas, you know, statements from the Buddha that purport to do the same thing. But I don't think that's the heart of his teachings. And probably a good argument could be made that these are later accreditions. But doesn't matter. There are many things in this world you can't explain. And just throwing out, oh, it's their karma, doesn't explain it either. Right? But you can pay attention to what you're about to do. And see that, is this wholesome or not? In other words, do you really want to reap the consequences of this action? There is a sutta where the Buddha says that not everything that happens to a person is the result of karma. He lists eight different things, and karma is the last in the list. There's things like earthquakes and fires and wars and kings getting uppity and robbers, you know. All of this stuff is things that happen to you that are not the result of your actions. Now, it may be uh, you go into a particularly dangerous part of town and wander around flashing a lot of cash and you wind up getting mugged and robbed. Well, yeah, that's the result of your careless action there. But not everything is the result of who you are. Some of this can be seen by examining how you got your start in life. I doubt that any of us really decided, okay, I'm going to incarnate with these parents and I'm going to go to this school and I'm going to get this education or any of that sort of stuff, right? You just found yourself here and they told you, stop playing, go to school, right? And you were like, oh, okay. And so off you went. You weren't really getting to do much choosing initially. Now, it says we are born of our actions. Uh, I would say that we become who we are as a result of previous actions. You have acted in the past in certain ways, and it has colored who you've become now. We live supported by our actions. You have a job. You go to work. You do actions there. They give you money. That's how you're supported. This is pretty obvious. We are related to our actions. At the time of the Buddha, your familial relationships were extremely important. And the Buddha was saying that actually you are more related to your actions than you are to other human beings that you share the same genetic material. That you really are related to your actions. And that the only thing that we own are our actions. Nothing else is really ours. I have an interesting note here. I knew this would happen and I told myself repeatedly not to get stuck in it. But unfortunately, I'm stuck in it. It happens every retreat. Ever since your talk last night, my mind has been running <clears throat> with the same long story about how much I really disagree with the Buddha's asceticism and metaphysics. I simply can't bring myself to believe in karma and rebirth and the stringent denial of life's sweet, uh, simplest pleasures fills me with much aversion. I can't concentrate. I know they are I know they say an open mind is good, but not so open that your brain falls out. Any suggestions to ex- escape from these loops? Put down the aversion and just get on with it would be much appreciated. So I assume what triggered this note was talking last night about the night of the Buddhist enlightenment. And in the first watch of the night, 
he remembered past lives. Literally, he remembered previous dwellings. And in the second watch of the night, he saw beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. You've got to remember that the Buddha was teaching to a very well-established culture, one that took for granted multiple lifetimes. Uh, We take for granted today modern physics. I mean, if some spiritual teacher were to get up and start teaching something that flew in the face of modern science. No, wait, they already do that. I'm sorry. Uh, But we just sort of dismiss these people don't have a clue of what's going on, right? Well, that would have been what happened if the Buddha had got up and said, no, 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 this rebirth, reincarnation stuff, forget about that. Let me tell you about quantum physics. Nobody would have listened to him, right? (laughs) The Buddha was very shrewd. He would take the outlook of the people that he was talking to and he would tweak it just slightly. The Buddha never set out to describe a consistent metaphysics. It's not there. The Buddha said, I teach one thing only, the end of dukkha. And everything that he taught was simply skillful means to enable people to begin practicing, then practice effectively, and then gain the insights so that they could stop their craving and overcome dukkha. He wasn't trying to explain what's going on. He left the explanations in his culture intact. Now, when he says he remembers past lives or he remembers previous dwellings, it doesn't even say in the sutta he remembered his previous lives or his previous dwellings. It just says he remembered past lives. And then he goes on to describe one life, two lives, three lives, five, ten, a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand. Should we take this literally? All right, so I'm a mathematician. I did the math. A hundred thousand lifetimes remembered in four hours. One watch of the night, there were three watches of the night, okay, so we're on the equator when you're in India, means days and nights are about 12 hours long. Three into 12 is four. He's got four hours to remember 100,000 lifetimes. Do the math right quick. He's got one-sixth of a second to remember each lifetime. Now, this, is, this isn't the Buddha. This is the Buddha to be. He's not enlightened yet, all right? Every, six, every second, he's got to remember six previous lives, his name, his clan, what kind of food he ate, what kind of job he had, and how he died in a sixth of a second. I don't think we can take this literally. What was he up to in the first watch of the night? Maybe he was just simply reflecting on all of the previous experiences he'd had. Maybe he was reflecting on how who he was was dependent upon his parents and his grandparents, the culture he was in. I don't know what he was doing. All I told you last night is what it says in the sutta. One of the most important things to bring on the spiritual path, besides an open mind, is being comfortable with, I don't know. So what was the Buddha doing in the first watch of the night? What does it mean that he remembered his past lives? I don't know. I don't think that's really important. And then in the second watch of the night, he saw beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. I could go into lots of details about that. You know, this is between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. So people were dying between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. And then they were uh, coming back into the womb of another woman. But, you know, probably there weren't a lot of people having sex between 10 a.m. and uh, 10 p.m. and 2 p.m. I mean, you can really, again, start going into the details here, and it's quite clear, I don't know what he meant by that. Did he even say it? You know, was this something that was added later? I don't know. One of these days, when I get enough time, 
I want to put up a website that's the enlightenment test. It would have 40 questions. Uh, All of the questions would be multiple choice. Uh, All of the questions would have as the, you know, particular answers, and then all of the above, none of the above, I don't know. And it would contain questions like, Osama bin Laden spent the majority of the year 2002 living in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Crawford, Texas. All of the above, none of the above, I don't know. Well, come on, people, you don't know, right? So 20 of the questions, the correct answer is, I don't know, and that's what the test is all about. Everything else is just a smokescreen. Most people, however, are very uncomfortable with, I don't know. Go around and ask people, where did Osama bin Laden spend the majority of the year 2002? They're going to tell you. They don't know, but they got an idea, and because they think they got an idea, they think they know. So... When you hear teachings like on karma and rebirth and it doesn't really make sense to you, realize you don't know about that. Leave it in the I don't know category. I think the only thing that's necessary to believe in all of the Buddha's teachings is that the spiritual path can lead to a better life when done effectively. That's it. You don't have to believe anything else. In other words, that there is something that you can do. There are practices that you can undertake that will in some way reduce the amount of dukkha. Maybe you don't get it all eliminated, but it's worth pursuing just to reduce some of the dukkha. You need to believe that in order to get started. This is the faith or confidence that the Buddha speaks about. Having enough faith that this path has a heart, that you start following it. Everything else, check it out for yourself and be quite willing to leave things in the I don't know category. So that hopefully takes care of the karma and rebirth part. Just leave it, I don't know. As for denying yourself life's simple pleasures, I think what the Buddha is saying is don't go pursuing life's simple pleasures. It's not going to work. He's not saying you need to deny them. In fact, what he's saying is that if you stop pursuing them, they'll still come to you, and you can probably enjoy them much more because you can be fully present with them and experience them as they are without worrying about getting them again or keeping them or anything else. But the pursuit of pleasures as he points out, is ultimately unsatisfying. There is no sensual pleasure that after you experience it, you go, wow, finally, got enough of that. I mean, you see a beautiful sunset. When it's over, do you go, wow, I never have to see another sunset as long as I live? No, you're like, I'm coming back tomorrow night and I'm going to bring my camera, (laughs) right? So the idea of not pursuing sensual pleasures is to simply recognize that it's not going to be ultimately satisfying. That your best strategy, in other words, your best intentions, are intentions of letting go because nothing that you hang on to is going to be ultimately satisfying. And acting in this world with a loving and compassionate heart. This is the kind of intentions, this is the kind of karma that you want to have. So, questions, comments on the five daily reflections? So this is from the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses. Uh, this is from book five. The numerical discourses have, has 11 books. The first book has lists of one. The second book, lists of two. This is book five, list of five. 
It's the 57th sutta. And in that sutta, the Buddha says that you should reflect on these five things every day. You should reflect that it applies to you, and you should also reflect it applies to everyone. Everyone is of the nature to grow old, sick, and die. Anything that anyone finds dear and delightful is subject to changing and vanishing. And everyone is the owner of their karma. Everyone reaps what they sow. Since the Buddha says that we should do this every day, I'm going to strongly suggest that you do this every day during this retreat. That you get concentrated to the best of your ability, and then once you're concentrated, then reflect on these five things. Say them to yourself, just, you know, one after the other, and then spend at least a little bit of time reflecting on one of them in some detail. You could spend, you know, the entire meditation period after you're concentrated reflecting on each one of them in turn, but at least reflect on one of them and do this at least once a day. So as I said, this is an insight practice. The idea is to get your mind concentrated and then to investigate reality. And these five reflections are reflections of reality. So any questions on how you would do this as a practice? Yes. Okay, I will find a printer and print them out and put them on the board. Yes. Can this practice be also used to investigate other realities for yourself? What do you mean? Um, I mean, uh, more like issues or, or, I mean, the practice as visualizing it and saying it to yourself could also be useful. Yeah, the contemplations be used to investigate yeah, your own internal stuff, very much so. The general method for contemplation would be that you say some statement or ask some question, and then you think about it. In particular, it's helpful if you ask a question and then let an answer appear, turn that answer into a question, and let another answer appear. Turn that answer into a question and just keep doing it like that. So, do I actually believe I'm going to get old? Well, yeah, it's happening. So, what do I feel about it's happening that I'm getting old? I don't like it. Why don't you like it? Well, my joints hurt when I get out of bed. Well, is there anything you can do about that? Well, maybe I could do some yoga. I mean, it may be something like that that comes up. All right, but whatever you get for an answer to a question, turn it into a question. And it may reach the point where it just sort of peters out or starts going in a loop or something. Then go back to the original statement or question and try it again. Now, this is a very effective insight method, not only for these five, but for personal insights and for investigation of other things as well. Other questions, comments? You could do it during a sitting, but you could also do it, you know, sitting down and writing something. <laughs> you could get your iPhone and talk to it. and <laughs> Yeah, but I would recommend while you're on the retreat doing it while you're meditating. But it's effective at other times as well. What I will say is take a look at the various discourses where the Buddha gives all 16 steps of Anapanasati. Uh, the last four of the 16 steps are using the breath as insight practice. There's a book 
by Ajahn Buddhadasa, translated by Santikaro, called Mindfulness with Breathing, that discusses this in some detail. Uh, but basically, the 13th step is to, as you're breathing in and out, notice the impermanence of everything. The impermanence of the breath, the impermanence of your distractions, the impermanence of everything around you. So the breath can be used as uh, a method for investigating impermanence, would be one of the ways in which it can be used. It can also be used as more of an anchor. In other words, instead of trying to get the tightly focused concentration necessary for access concentration in the jhanas, you sit with a more open awareness of what's going on in the world, but to prevent yourself from becoming totally distracted, you come back to the breath if there's not anything else that's calling your attention. So that's a couple ways it can be used. Because of the depth of the one-pointedness in jhana, I don't think you can do jhanas and walk because you would be so totally focused on the experience you're going to walk into a tree or something. But it may be that while doing walking meditation, you find yourself getting very concentrated and the PT may even start to come up to actually make it the jhana where that's your whole experience. Stop. and. Right. You could then just stand and have the jhana come on. And I've had a number of students report that this does happen to them. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay, there's something else that can be useful for your practice. And that's five things to do at the beginning of a sitting. Often what we find is we come in to meditate, we just sit down and we start meditating. But there are some things you can do that will be helpful to get you more settled so that the meditation starts off on the right foot. The first of these is to generate some gratitude. Gratitude for the opportunity to practice. Gratitude to the teachers that have taught you the practice. Gratitude to all those who have preserved the Buddha's Dharma for us. This is a huge undertaking. I mean, the Buddha would give his discourses, and his disciples would memorize them. And then after his death, they collected them and taught them to the next generation who memorized them and taught them to the next generation. And this went on for about 300 years. It's quite a big deal to memorize this much material. Then they realized that the memorization was in danger of not being such an effective way to preserve the teachings. I believe this occurred after a famine in Sri Lanka and many of the people that were memorizing things died. And so they decided to write down the teachings. Now, writing was known at the time of the Buddha, but it was only used for like accounting. Uh, They didn't have any paper, so writing was not an important part of the culture. And even in Sri Lanka, they didn't have paper. What they had were ola leaves, the leaves of a plant, a palm tree, which they would dry, and then they would take a stylus and scratch the letters into the leaves. They would take some berry juice and then smear on the leaf after they carved it, and then wipe away the excess. And where they had carved, the berry juice would stay and make a dark mark, and where they had not carved, it would wipe away. And this was the leaves of their books. Now, an ola leaf book has a very limited shelf life, maybe 100 years. So when they finished carving the first set, they immediately had to start carving a replacement set. And this went on for many, many, many years. In fact, there are still places in Sri Lanka where they continue to do this. 
this required not only the hundreds of thousands or millions of carvers, but the people that built the monasteries where they lived and provided them with food and everything else. So this is an undertaking that has required many millions of people to preserve these teachings so that we can have them today. So some gratitude for those who preserve the Buddha's teachings for us. Some gratitude to the Buddha. I mean, he spent 45 years teaching. He could have just hung out and enjoyed the bliss of enlightenment. But no, he went out and he taught. Uh, His opponents tried to frame him for various crimes, tried to murder him. Uh, But he was out there teaching. So the first thing when you sit down, generate some gratitude for the circumstances that allow you to practice and for the teachings and the fact that they're available to us. The second thing is to get in touch with your motivation. Why are you here? Why are you taking 10 days out of your life to come here and meditate? Why didn't you go to Majorca? I mean, somehow this has a priority. Uh, So what's your motivation for practice? It can be very helpful to get in touch with your motivation while you're doing this at the start of a sitting. The third thing is to work up some determination. Not determination to get anything, but determination to use this time as wisely as you can. This is the time to meditate. Let me really give myself to it and not get lost in my arguments with my boss or planning my holiday or whatever. I really want to use this time for meditation. So work up the determination and then let it go. It's sort of like if you clench your fist and then you relax it, there's a residual effect. This seems to happen with the determination at the start of the practice. The fourth thing, probably the most important, is metta. Start every meditation period with metta, loving kindness. Always start with yourself and then if you want to, you can optionally send metta to others as well. So metta. If you're doing some practice other than mindfulness of breathing, these four are sufficient. Just start doing the practice then. If you're doing metta as your practice, well, you're already underway with the metta. So, If you're doing mindfulness of breathing, there's a little gata, a little saying from Thich Nhat Hanh. Breathing in, I calm body and mind. Breathing out, I smile. This pretty much is a complete set of instructions for the first jhana. Breathe in and out. Smile. Get calm. That'll take you there. Now, don't take it too literally and just try and smile on the in-breath and get calm on the out-breath or anything like that. All right? Just breathing in and out and getting calm and smiling, all right? So these five things, gratitude, motivation, determination, metta, and the little gata, breathing in, I calm body and mind, breathing out, I smile. Try them, see if you find them useful. There will be a quiz, okay? And yes, I will put them on the board out there. Any questions about that? How long do you suggest that process take? And especially how long is it for meta for? How long should the take to do the five things, particularly the meta aspect? I actually timed myself one time and uh, a short version took forty five seconds. A longer version could take maybe even 10 minutes if I really get into the metta. So the gratitude, the motivation, the determination might not take, you know, more than 30 seconds or so. It just depends on how many people you're busy thanking with the gratitude section and how elaborate you want to get with your motivation and determination. But, yeah, 30 seconds to a minute maybe at the most. 
And then the metta, uh, it varies. Sometimes my metta would be quite quick. And sometimes I would, like I say, spend maybe 10 minutes before I put my attention on my breath. So in general, I would say somewhere between 30 seconds and a few minutes, maybe sort of averaging a couple of minutes at the most. But yeah, don't make a big deal about it. Yeah, if it doesn't work for you, you can let it go. These are suggestions. Three of them came from my teacher, Ayakema, and I tried them and they worked. They found them helpful. And two of them are ones that I added. So I'd say play with it and see if it works. If it doesn't work or whatnot, I'd say dismiss it. The only exception being, even if you find the metta hokey and doesn't work, I would still suggest working with the metta. If you really are finding metta doesn't work for you, it's a sure sign that you should work on metta. So uh, at least play with the metta a little bit. I mean, even if you don't feel it, it just think about some people that you would wish would be well and happy and just wish that they'd be well and happy and then let it go. This is part of reprogramming your brain. Uh, we have emotional set points. Did I mention this? Right? So just thinking, may these people be well and happy, is moving your emotional set point towards the more positive side. How much should you spend doing metta for yourself? <clears throat> Again, if you find it difficult to do metta for yourself, you should spend more time on it. Uh, if you find it easy, then you can be fairly quick. Uh, I'd say spend at least 20, 30 seconds on metta for yourself if you're you know, really into it. Like the, the time I was doing it in 45 seconds, yeah, the metta for myself was probably five seconds, 10 seconds. So it wasn't much. But I would say that, you know, you're on a retreat, you got lots of time. So give yourself metta for 20, 30 seconds at least. And if you find it difficult to give metta to yourself, then yeah, spend more time doing it. We live in a culture that is there's an epidemic of low self-esteem. I remember being with James Barras on his Thursday night meditation class, and he asked people, how many have low self-esteem? 95% of the people in the room raised their hand. How many people have high self-esteem? Out of maybe 60 people, three people raised their hand. So the metta for yourself is one of the things you can do to counteract the low self-esteem. It's not going to fix it right away. It may seem hokey. Just keep working on it. This is, this is a long-term project. Right. Yeah, well, generally we tend to give flowers to people when we like them or there's some nice event or something like that. We're sharing in their happiness, right? So what we're doing with this visualization is triggering into that impulse to give something beautiful to someone. And, yeah, I mean, it's just an image and basically you're giving them dead plant matter, <laughs> Right, But it's beautiful, and it's the feeling behind it that matters. So what you're doing is you're tapping into that and letting that happen, and it starts to generate some feeling. So, yeah, when you're doing metta for yourself, you can picture, you know, you giving flowers to lots of people and a nice bouquet for yourself if you want to at the start of your sitting. Yeah. You can use the phrases. You can use an image. You can just simply generate the feeling. 
whatever, whatever works. Uh, none of this stuff is, you know, better than anything else. The only thing that really matters is does it work.